This is Back to Excitement with your hosts, Arvind and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 142. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Uh, excited for the end of the regular season and to... I'm excited for the playoffs, which is a mistake, because as soon as the playoffs come, I'm not going to be excited for them. I'm going to be terrified of them. Oh, yeah. This is going to be a wave of anxiety that will consume us all. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, at the moment, the regular season is pretty much totally moot, except for health seasons for the Leafs now. You know, they've clinched first in the division. There's really not a whole lot else, because Austin Matthews is running away with the Rocket Richard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as good as Connor McDavid currently is playing, I don't know if he's going to score, like, 10 goals in two games, so, yeah. Uh, McDavid does have an outside shot at 112 points, though, which is just bananas. The tear that he's been on recently, I can only remember one time like it recently, and it was that point streak that Crosby was on. Uh, What was it, 2009? But it was that stretch where just every night he came out and you were like, well, he's going to score again. And they're probably going to win the game as a consequence. McDavid is just dragging the Oilers to victories right now. Yeah, it's un- it's unbelievable what he's doing offensively. Is just the be- the best offensive player in the world, and maybe the best offensive player we've seen since you know Gretzky and Lemieux. Yeah, just absolutely absurd. Um, yeah, I-, I won't lie. I still think the Leafs are favored if it comes to a series against the Oilers, but I'm not unhappy that it looks like McDavid is going to be someone else's problem round one. <laughs> he scares me a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 he's been averaging like three points a game over the past ten games or something like that. And you think about, like, the obvious thing is, okay, that means the Oilers are scoring at least three goals a game. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a little bit scary. You kind of wonder, it's like, you know, they have seven wins in their last ten, and it's like, why don't you have ten wins in your last ten? <laughs> You have one guy who's like a three-point-a-night player. Like, this should be gravy, so... Anyway. Uh, yeah. What we thought we would do today, because we're a little bit ahead of the end of the regular season, so we can't quite look ahead to the playoff series. We thought we would look at some things that surprised us this year. Um, some of this is stuff we were just wrong about, stuff we didn't expect. Uh, stuff that did not accord with this season, which in a lot of ways actually kind of went sort of as expected. Like, maybe more so than I think we would have anticipated, because COVID seems like a way to make the year crazy. But a lot of the playoff teams look like the teams we would have thought would be here pretty well. Yeah, the biggest surprise, I guess, is Dallas not being in. But then they also, you know, they got hit early with COVID and had a really slammed scheduled last half of the season which i think might have hurt them yeah and tyler sagan was out for virtually the entire year which i don't think he was anticipated to be at the start like i thought they would he was gonna miss a couple months but you know he's probably still their best player so that hurts Mm -hmm. but beyond that yeah you have a lot of playoff teams that look like what we would have considered the class of the nhl but there were some things that did not go as we expected And we're going to start with a classic theme of this podcast since the very first episode, which was, how were the Sabres this bad? 
we've been doing this podcast for four years, and I think this has been a podcast topic in each of the four years. Yes. And it's reached new depths, I want to say, this time around, because it's not like we expected the Sabres to be good. Like, if you listen back to our Round the League podcast last summer, or, well, last offseason, the, <laughs> the summer was actually in the fall, but we were like, okay, the Sabres are improved a little bit. They've got Taylor Hall, they've got a top six with Eric Stahl on it also that looks like it could at least put some pucks in the net. And they won't be great, but they'll probably rise a little bit to, you know, maybe an 80, 85-point pace, and that'll be more respectable. They'll still be sort of in the running for a playoff spot relatively late in the season, even if they ultimately don't make it. Um, the Buffalo Sabres are currently in last by a huge margin. They're not going to catch anybody because their season actually just ended last night. Um, it was terrible. And so instead of them taking a step back towards respectability for the first time in a long time... Everything went to shit, again, and they finished last, again. And so, even though I expected them to be, like, low-end mediocre, I was probably farther off on what was going to happen with the Sabres than any other team. At least if you try and look at it in terms of, like, how many points they wound up getting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as always in times like this, I first turned to friend of the podcast, Kevin who is a Sabres fan and who has suffered greatly. He also obviously has a lot of standards of comparison for bad seasons. And I said, what went wrong? And Kevin's response was keeping all their biggest negatives. He said, that's a broad answer, but they brought back Ralph Kruger, who was their coach. going to have a bit to say about him in a minute. And they took too long to fire him. They kept the same bad center depth and didn't move Sam Reinhart back to center until it was too late. They kept... Uh, mascot of this podcast, Rasmus Ristolainen, who, God bless him, again, was not very successful this year, and they kept the same iffy goalies. And so it's sort of a combination of they weren't as good as they thought, and also they took a long time to recognize that is a factor. They also played Cody Eakin. Just a, I don't think people re- realize how bad Cody Eakin is now. Just in, in general. I, I know people probably, forwards. Yeah, I'm, I mean, Cody Eakin probably doesn't, you know, ho- uh, doesn't probably occupy much brain space in hockey fans generally, like even <laughs> when he was at his peak. But he <laughs> is, like, really, there. yeah, he's really, really awful now. And they spent, it seems, most of the year with him as, like, a third-line center. And like, normally your third-line center isn't killing you. But mm. when your third-line center is, like, you know, let's say your third-line center is Freddie Gauthier, right? That's a problem. Yeah. Right, and that that's more or less what's what's happened here. <laughs> yeah, if you play like a replacement caliber player a lot of minutes in your middle six, that's going to tell on you in due time. Now it has to be yeah. said, I think this is true of all of these teams that do really, really bad, is that there were a lot of things that went wrong that were foreseeable. But obviously there was also a lot of bad luck. You know, there was COVID on the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rasmus Ristolainen himself talked about what he's experienced, and, uh, you know, it was pretty harrowing. They also had a crazy finishing slump. And Taylor Hall has gotten to Boston and has immediately resumed scoring at what looks like a superstar rate. Uh, because, of course, he did. 
he can't have nice things. But also, he was so cold in Buffalo that either he had, you know, devastating lingering injuries or he was just really getting unlucky. And that was true of several players on the team. Mm-hmm. The Eric Stahl as well. And then, you know, Kevin mentioned the, the goalies, right? And mm-hmm. yeah, the goalies have been really awful. If, if one of them, you know, catch, catches lightning in a bottle and plays like a little bit better, even approaching league average, they're not nearly this bad. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that'll be something that'll come up with another team that kind of surprised us. But there was also the whole mystery of Ralph Kruger. And to be honest, this is what fascinates me. Because Kruger was such a great story. Um, you know, he worked at Southampton, who were... They're an English Premier League team. And... And a well-run team at that, generally speaking. Like, a team that's punched above their weight re- recently has, you know, done relatively well in a, in a competitive league while getting kind of rated for players fairly regularly. And that's impressive. And Ralph Kruger is a very articulate, well-spoken guy. And he has a bit of a a man-in-the-world air to him. You know, he seems well-informed, maybe more aware of things just outside of hockey compared to your typical hockey coach. And I think that appealed to some people. I thought he was, you know, kind of charming. His players seemed to love him. He was kind of a popular guy. There is some question as to could this guy actually coach a hockey team at a particularly high level. And... There's some evidence that maybe not, because the Sabres' offense absolutely tanked under him this year. Um, Kevin mentioned rush chances and shots as a big thing that changed when Kruger was fired and they replaced him with Dom Granato. And, you know, you do want to have some of those. If you're too static, uh, especially as a team like the Sabres, you're really going to suffer from failing to generate good chances for your shooters. Now, the Sabres should have had some good shooters, but the whole team seemed to get so stifled. And now Jack Eichel went down with injury after a certain time period, so that didn't help. They quite correctly realized that they weren't going to do anything this year, so they traded Eric Stahl, Taylor Hall, and Brandon Montour. But they've actually improved offensively since, despite losing all of that talent. Now, it, it maybe is a dead cat bounce, and they were just kind of due for some better luck. But it's kind of an indictment of Ralph Kruger, how bad things got. And, you know, there was that absolutely endless seeming losing streak. Mm-hmm. It, it also has to be said, um, Rasmus Dahlin, you know, he, he was touted uh, as a really elite level defense prospect who, you know, is as close to a guarantee to win Norris as anyone. Mm-hmm. And he's been better when not under Kruger. But I don't I think it's fair to say he hasn't hit the heights that he was perhaps anticipated to as quickly as people would have hoped given his pre draft pedigree. Right? I mean you, you look at the players um drafted it, it, it first overall you know, the year before or whatever, mm-hmm. right? I mean, year before was the, the 2017 draft, right? Which was, who was that? That was... Nico um, Hischier? Oh, yeah, Nico Hischier. So that, that wasn't a great draft either. I mean, Hischier was good, mm-hmm. but that not an elite number one. Dalin was kind of expected to be more towards what we saw the years prior, where we were spoiled with Matthews, McDavid, Eichel, Line, those types of players. Right. 
and yeah, hasn't quite turned out that way yet. He's still, you know, super young. He's been in perhaps the most dysfunctional, you know, situation you could possibly be in for a young defenseman. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it has to be said that that's a big part of, you know, the... Or that that's a part of some of the disappointment of failing to live up to expectations. It's that you know they were banking on having Darlene basically be, you know, a a number one defenseman at this point. Right, and the fact and he that isn't he hasn't quite there yet. Done it. Yeah, that's uh, it, it's glaring, and it, it's too bad because you know I do believe that it takes a little longer sometimes for defensemen to come into their own. We've seen some young defensemen put up great showings lately. Don't get me wrong, you know, Kale McCarr, Quinn Hughes, but to come in right out of your draft and to have that much hope kind of weighed upon you. That is a lot to ask of Delane. Now that said, we're coming to the end of his third season and we should be starting to get a better idea of what he's going to be. He's still got lots of time to develop. It's just, I, I think everyone's expectations for him are probably lower than they were a couple of years ago. It's just natural. So I mean, we could probably list endlessly all of the things that have gone wrong for Buffalo um, over the last few years, and there's been a lot of dubious management, a lot of bad luck at times, um, and some really terrible acquisitions or decisions to unload, like the Ryan O'Reilly trade. This year, it was maybe just a little bit more surprising, because... I don't think we've ever had much faith that Buffalo was going to do that much in any of our off-seasons. And then this year was the first time I was thinking, maybe there's some light at the end of a tunnel. And the universe just absolutely was not having it. Um, I guess as much as anything is evidence as to what a little bit of bad luck and a little bit of bad coaching can really do to derail you when you're already a flawed team. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Anyway, uh, you know what? Maybe they'll trade Jack Eichel for a huge ransom, and that'll sort of help. But, my God. <laughs> yeah, in, in my opinion, they should definitely trade Jack Eichel to, I don't know, a, maybe a place nearby. Just They need to reset, get a culture reset of hardworking players who don't have high salaries. So may, maybe players like, I don't know, Alex Kerfoot, like Justin Hall. Um, you know, Ilya Mikheyev has a great attitude. Really does, really does. Throw in some Pierre Engvall. I, I, you know what? I think, I think there's something workable there. Yeah, you know, they'll get a few pieces. We'll get this uh, Jack Eichel, whoever he is, and you know, I'm sure it'll help both teams. Yeah. Well, look. <laughs> all I'm saying is, the Sabers haven't been good with Eichel. You gotta ask the question. Ilya Mikheyev has made the playoffs every year he's been in the league. <laughs> QED, baby. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, I do actually feel for the Sabres fans at this point. Yeah, I mean, they're they're long-suffering. It's hard to make fun of the Sabres without feeling like you're just picking on a a little kid. Yeah, at a certain point, it's like, come on. Now, as soon as the Sabres get good again, they are going to come for us. Their Mm, fan base hates us, and I understand that. And so I will immediately regret any sympathy I'm now feeling, but... I do get it. Like, this is such a long period of just absolute failure. That should have ended by now. And I don't know that it's going to get much better next season. Like, I was looking at the standings this year for, like, a a reconstituted Atlantic and just sort of piecing out in my mind 
how it might come together, it's, there's like a decent chance Ottawa's going to finish ahead of Buffalo next year. By the way, um, this year maybe has kind of reinforced that Leaf fans weren't just being salty when they said, hey, our division's really tough. Yeah, and you know what? Okay, I know that obviously the name of the game is if the Leafs do it, it doesn't mean anything, and there are a lot of people being like, it doesn't matter that you won the Canadian division. All right. But, like, these are some of the same people who are like, yeah, oh, whatever, you have to play with Tampa Bay and Boston. Well, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> Either division strength matters or it doesn't. So, yeah. I, I think the Leafs genuinely were probably better, especially in 2018, than they got credit for because they got knocked out round one. But that's residual bitterness, and I'm going to work through that in therapy. <laughs> All right, yeah, so we could probably uh, move on to the next thing we wanted to discuss. Yeah, and that was... Similar theme. Yeah, what went wrong in Calgary? Because, so we did our picks for the division. And Montreal, I'm going to generously say, is TBD. Because everyone keeps being like, why do you still think that they're good? They're obviously bad. And I'm like, let's see them with some of their players back, especially Brendan Gallagher. But admittedly, it's a lot of fun that the Leafs keep beating them. Anyway... But beyond that, I don't feel too bad about many of my predictions. Winnipeg has helped in this regard by immediately stinking up the joint for the last bit of the season. But Calgary, I really just thought was better than this. Obviously, you know, it's really been a disappointing year from their perspective, and it should be. This team should have seriously contended for a playoff spot in the North. They're going to end up nowhere close. They may actually end up behind Ottawa depending on how things pan out, or even conceivably Vancouver, which would be a real embarrassment. But either way, they're a very disappointed team. And I gotta tell you, sometimes a lot of the answer is just one thing. In this case, Jacob Markstrom just hasn't been good enough. And I'm not right. saying that's the whole answer, but that's a huge factor. Right, and I mean, when you spend a decent amount of money in free agency to get a guy... You know, you, you do that hoping that league average is the floor. Yeah, and they haven't gotten it. They've gotten pretty bad goaltending out of him. And I don't really know that that was survivable for a team like Calgary that is decent. Maybe even a little above average in some respects, but not great. Like, they were just not good enough to survive really rough goaltending, and that's what they got. And... I think that's honestly as much of the story as anything else. It's just the disappointment of Jacob Markstrom. Um, Mark Giordano has also aged. I called him Mark the Old Mano in my notes. Very sad. Um, he's still, like, not a bad player or anything. And, you know, at his age, he's one of the oldest defensemen in the NHL. But two years ago, he was a Norris-caliber player. He's not that anymore. And the team is worse as a consequence. That's the most obvious example of age catching up with them. Um, I do think if this team had been a little luckier and Markstrom had been a little steadier in net, they easily could have made the playoffs. And I think both Jeff Ward and Daryl Sutter were getting decent enough results that that was possible. But the fact remains, they didn't get good enough goaltending. And I do think Daryl Sutter... There's a price to pay for what he brings in terms of metrics. You know, the team has actually improved in XG since he signed on. 
but they're better in actual goal scoring, and I don't think that's coincidental with Daryl Sutter at this point. Do you mean worse in actual goal scoring? Yeah, sorry about, yeah, their offense is impaired from what it used to be. And, yeah, I think that that's definitely not accidental in Sutter's right. And I think one of the problems is that we're talking about the Flames, and we're kind of saying that, you know, if things went well, they could have made the playoffs, and that's it, kind of, you know, made mm-hmm. the playoffs. You know, when, when you make the playoffs, yeah, you can always make a Cinderella run, but um, as, you know, a set of commercials keep reminding me, hope is not a plan. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Right? So you can make the playoffs, but if you're most likely going to be bouncing round one, and even if you make round two, you're most likely to be bouncing round two if you get there. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're kind of in purgatory to some extent, and I think the Flames are kind of coming to grips with this existential crisis of who they are as a team, and how do we build the next great Flames team? And I think the question is, you know, are Johnny Gaudreau and Sean Monaghan part of that team? Yes, and I have the answer, and the answer is no. <laughs> I mean, right, I don't so- know that they couldn't, but I would be stunned if Gaudreau was back next year. Yeah, it, it really does seem like you know, an off-season trade for either Goodrow or Monaghan or both is, mm-hmm. is in the works. And then kind of a, a retool around Matthew Kachuk, Rasmus Anderson, um, Dylan Dubé, Yusuf Valimaki, those types of players will, will kind of be the, the goal for the Flames. And you could probably get, you know, a decent amount for, for either of those guys. Monaghan's interesting in that he came to the league and was like a very good shooter. Right, who who didn't have a great all round game in his early years, and his all round game has, you know, improved and waxed and waned a little bit. It's still not amazing, but most critically, his shooting has really not been that good for quite a while. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you know, were were those two seasons of really strong shooting to start his career just kind of him getting lucky or something? Was it um, something that happened that made him a worse shooter? I, I don't know. Yeah, he's really feeling the uh, the decline right now. I mean, just looking at raw point totals, sometimes it is just that easy as to figure out why a player is deemed disappointing. And in Monaghan's case, it's like, yeah, you know, two years ago he was better than point a game for a full year. He looked like a bona fide first-line offensive center. This year he's scuffling, kind of. And yeah. that's not great. And, and yeah, sorry, go ahead. even even more like he's had really good goal scoring seasons recently, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it, it yeah, it's not it certainly hasn't carried over to either of the last um, two seasons, mm-hmm. right? And and actually, it, it's interesting when you look at his his shooting percentage has always been quite high, right? Like up until two years ago, he he was kind of in the 13 to 16% range, very consistently, mm-hmm. which is obviously really impressive. Um, but part of that is also because he, he generated a lot of shots from really, really good areas. So it wasn't like his shooting was very, very good in his first two years. After that, it was more that he was getting a lot of really, really good shots and converting them okay. Mm-hmm. But now he's kind of neither converting um, an especially large amount of the shots that he takes, quality adjusted, and he's also not taking as many great shots it seems which is a great recipe to not score very much and Mm -hmm. you can see the disappointment in calgary because they thought a couple of years ago they were maturing in the direction of a perennial contender 
or at least, you know, they were going to be competitive for another couple of years around a strong core of Monaghan, Gaudreau, Kachuk. Uh, Mikhail Backlund is still a, a good defensive center. And Mark Giordano was defying age to a remarkable degree. But I do have to say, I think this team is better than it looked this year. But at the same time, they've got some contracts that are, you know, nearing the end of what you can expect to get from them in terms of value. Like, Mikkel Backlund is 32. You know, maybe he's got another couple good years in him, but he's up there. Chris Tanev is 31 and injury prone. Having a pretty decent year, but still, Mark Giordano is declining in 37. You know, you do you throw this in the package with them being displeased with Johnny Gaudreau, who is going to have one year left on his deal anyway, and there is a definite where-do-we-go-from-here thing. I think the the Flames, it was rumored at least, were looking at doing major surgery on their roster last offseason, and that they kind of shied away from it. I don't think they're going to shy away again. I think it's going to be a a notably different team, and at least Goodrow is going to be gone, would be my guess. So, that's what happens I when wonder, you don't get goaltending, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I wonder who goes for Goodrow. The rumor has always been that he wants to move back to the northeastern U.S. And so yeah, teams so like, like the Jersey, fi- Philadelphia. Yeah, Philly. Yeah. One of the New York teams. Jersey would be an interesting fit for him, actually, as they try to, you know. I don't know if the Islanders have the cap space for it, but, you know, Goodrow on a line with Matt Barzal would be pretty neat. On the other hand, Goodrow and a team run by Lou Lamarillo might not be so much fun. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's kind of under-recurring, under-running all of this stuff about Goodrow. is like, the nebulous character concerns about him and Monaghan of like how badly do they want to win or whatever. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know the answer to that. Yeah. No, I mean, all you know is he's a guy who likes to party supposedly. I have no idea what that entails or how much truth there is to that. Gaudreau remains a really effective offensive player, but he's not quite at the level that they're hoping for from him. And he hasn't been as productive this year. You know, the whole team has really slumped. Mm-hmm. and it's it's gotten kind of ugly. There is a bit of, like, I guess a whiff of kind of Phil Kessel syndrome here, where mm-hmm. Goudreau is a very good player, but isn't good enough to be the best forward on a high-end team. I think that there's probably some real truth to that. And I think the guy who I think a lot of us might have said was the best player now on the Flames, Matthew Kachuk, He's still effective in what he does on the ice, and he's still, like, a a gifted player. But I do find it easy to believe that he is maybe a bit of a circus. And this has come up before. You know, we were talking about it with the Leafs and how uh, Jake Muzzin flicked a puck at him and he imploded. And he started running around looking for a fight, and most of his team seemed to be like, okay, here goes Matthew again. And we're maybe not that interested in backing him up in some sort of brawl. So that's... I do think Matthew Kachuk is one of those guys where his personality and his character are going to influence the locker room. I'm not saying that he's bad or anything like that, but he's going to be a focal point. He's going to make himself the center of attention. And when things are going poorly for the team in general, I can see that sometimes... Raising the tension a little bit. So they yeah. probably have some decisions to make in general about him. I'm sure they are going to keep him. You don't give up really talented 23-year-old wingers with some sandpaper. 
but yeah, they've got some decisions as to what kind of team they want to have. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, sorry, go ahead. It's quite, it's, it's quite been, you know, not a great year for, for him as well, as you said. And I mean, mm-hmm. there was a point where we, where we said, yeah, I'd, I'd have Matthew Kachuk on his contract or for Mitch Marner on his. And now that looks ridiculously dumb. Yeah, it's gone completely the other direction. And so apologies to Mitch Marner, who it, it has to be said is having a hell of a fucking year. Yeah, um, yeah. absolutely crazy. And so, yeah, and now that value proposition is swung completely the other way. So the, the, the final piece is that this is Brad Treliving's team. He's built them for a long time. And so if this version of the team isn't getting it done, and that seems to have been established, should he be the guy to keep doing it? Is another overhanging question. So the, the, the Flames have a lot to ask themselves this offseason mm. for who they want to be. Um, yeah, any other thoughts about Calgary? Not particularly. It's just going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I could even see them just saying, oh, yeah, let's run it back. We're going to be in a weak division next year with the three Pacific teams. I guess um, Seattle, who who knows how Seattle's going to be. Uh, is Vegas going to be in the Pacific? And then the three Canadian teams. So they ought to have a shot. Oh, no, the four Western Canadian teams. No, Vegas can't be there. So I'm, mis- I'm, some- I'm, I'm messing up something then. Yeah, well, with what the Pacific's going to be next year. That's fine. But I don't remember. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But the point is, yeah. I do think that they're, there's got to be an element of, is this all there is at this point? Because, like, what's coming that's going to make this better? Yeah, I mean, if, if, but if it's the three California teams, the four Canadian Western teams, and Seattle, like, that's still a division you could fool yourself into thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to win that. Yeah. And, you know, they should be. I think thinking kind of aggressively. Um, but I do think that the disappointment in Calgary this year is pretty intense. Like firing Jeff Ward when they did was telling. So we'll, we'll see. Maybe I'm just talking myself into hoping for like an action packed offseason from them. I don't want every single team to sit on its hands and say, well, it was a COVID year. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, our third mystery is not as much fun and one that we've already discussed here. But it's why did the Leaf power play die? Because that was probably the biggest surprise around the Leafs generally this year, I think. A lot of things actually yeah. happened as expected. but Well, and, and the power play was really, really strong to start the year. And actually, if you look by, um, if you look by kind of XG the entire year, they still look kind of almost in a class of their own. Mm-hmm. Right? But... The, the goals have dried up, and we, we all knew the goals were going to dry up to some extent because they were running way, way, way hot to right. start. We, we said that, you know, very early on. Um, but also, you know, systemically, they don't seem to look as good. And, of course, that could just be, you know, a situation where our eyes are, are not seeing the pucks go in and we retrofit narratives to describe why that may be. But I also think there's something to it because, as, as we've covered, if you look in more recent times their shots, their XG, and of course their goals have really come down. They've no longer become been one of the league's elite, and that's really one of our... That, that, that's kind of how, what we need to be in order to be a, a truly great team, right? Mm-hmm. We're a very good 5-on-5 five five team this year, which has been very welcome to see. But, you know, to compete with the best, we have to make use of the fact that, hey, we, are, we have four forwards who are better than your top four forwards. And mm-hmm. part of that advantage is going to show itself on the power play. If it doesn't, then we're not getting our money's worth to some extent. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been 
bizarre. I keep finding myself thinking, okay, they've been bad, but they haven't been so bad that they deserve to have this few goals for. You know what I mean? Like, I still see them getting chances or ringing posts, sometimes just missing one where I'm like, when they're getting a little bit luckier, that goes in. And so I do think that even just left to its own devices, and admittedly this has been going a while now, it will be better than it has been. But it's also, yeah, it's down from its peak. It's not as effective as it ought to be. And if you want to make a case for the importance of good systems, unpredictability, good movement on the power play, you can look at the personnel that the Leafs can put out there and how they're doing and say, see, all these great ingredients are not currently leading to a great outcome. Uh, and I, I do think that that's a problem. It does feel sometimes like it's a little static, a little predictable maybe, a little bit, let's give the puck to Mitch Marner and hope that he figures something out. And the Leafs can seem very much like everyone gets to their assigned portion of the ice and stays there. And so do the defenders. You know, the Leafs set up in the umbrella formation and then the penalty killers collapse into the box and that's kind of it. The Leafs don't make them move. By, because they don't move themselves. And so there's a lot of ring around the rosy passing outside while nobody actually changes their positioning that much. Yeah, and there's also been part of it where, like, you know, this is part of what you said with the umbrella formation. Like, Marner's coming up really, really high to the point where he's almost playing, like, a second defenseman mm-hmm. at times, which is weird. Um, and I don't quite understand. I, I do feel like, I don't know, more... I would like more focus to be on the the net front players. Mm-hmm. I think that'll free up room for everyone. And part of the reason why I think, you know, Nylander really should be on power play one is because he's the only guy uh, on our team who, aside from, you know, like Tavares, uh, who doesn't play there right now, but he's the only guy who can play the net front and can do the, the net front stuff, the tips, the cleaning up rebounds, all that sort of stuff, but can also pop out and make passes. And with him on um, the left side of the ice, like kind of that left net front, him being a right-handed shot works perfectly. It allows him to pop out and get a lot of good passing angles. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it, it. When we do put Marner on that side, those two can connect, even though I, I prefer Marner on a strong side regardless. Um, but yeah, it, it, it seems as though we can be overly rigid at times. Right. And again, we're getting to a point here where we've had these people who we all know are really good, who have all been part of very good power plays in the past. And it's not working at the level that we expect. And so I think you have to ask if shuffling players between the units, but basically running the units in a similar fashion to beforehand is the right approach at this point. Like we have to consider how we're choosing to attack this. And, you know, I do think Manny Malhotra has to come up with something better at this point. You know, I said that the, I think the Leafs are getting unlucky, and I do. But, like, it does feel like we've just trusted this to work itself out, which I think was reasonable for a time span. But now it's not doing it. So you'd like to see something, but there are only two games left in the season. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know if we're going to get anything more than that. And then just hoping it regresses positively. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's... 
it's difficult. Um, when you look at what the Leafs are doing at the start of the year, the, well, actually, so before I get to that, there's one thing I'll say. Um, the entries are always kind of a point of discussion here. Mm-hmm. And I think that people dislike the drop back when it doesn't work because it looks really predictable and it looks really, really dumb when it doesn't work because the other team just sits on it. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and then they kind of gum it up and you're like, well, obviously that was going to happen. Um, one thing I liked I, that Rasmus Sandin did, at least once, possibly more, is you know he was the guy carrying up the puck who, in theory, is going to drop it back. And he just noticed, okay, there's no one pressuring me because they're all playing the drop back. I'm just going to get the zone entry myself. Right. And that's exactly what you should do. I think one of the things that the Leafs and maybe other teams also have problems with is when they do the drop back, they're too committed to the drop back. The point of the drop back is you have options. The team has less players than you. They can't defend everything. Yes, they can take away the drop back, but then they can't take away the guy carrying up the puck, or they can't take away the guy carrying up the puck passing to someone else who is open. Like it's by definition, they have fewer players than you. They cannot cover everyone. Mm-hmm. But what happens so often is a team will cover the drop back, and we're just we're just like, eh, okay, well, guess guess we'll drop it back anyways. Fair play to them. Yeah, you know? just try and battering <laughs> ram your way through it, and it's like that doesn't often work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the virtue of predictability in hockey is that everybody knows where to go, and so you don't have to rely on super-fast reaction times, right? Like, everyone can be in the play that they want to be in uh, without having to think through and register and figure it out in a split-second game. But with the power play, you should have a little bit more time to make decisions, to innovate, and to take advantage of what the defense is giving you. So yeah, I think that's absolutely a valid point. You know, sometimes you have to make use of, of the other options rather than just going with 1A every time. And I do wonder mm-hmm. if some of this is uh, a positive feedback loop where it's the power play is struggling, coach is preaching back to basics, and so you default more to the 1A strategy because you don't want to be the guy who's making it worse. And so, I don't know. It, it, just, it is kind of perplexing that it's gotten this cold for a team that we, again, know should be able to put together a great power play and has done so. So yeah, I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll have to hope that it, it heats up a little bit come playoff time because that is supposed to be a big strength. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the difference between this team being very good and maybe even genuinely being great in a conversation with the best teams. So, right. Yes. And even in, in playoff series where we're, you know, where we're favored, if you can get a couple power play goals in a series, right? Like that gives you a buffer, mm-hmm. especially against a team like Montreal, who who might well outscore you five on five, even though their numbers under um, Ducharme have have come down a little bit compared right. to their numbers under Julian, uh, in some respects. So yeah, like you re- you know those those goals are still goals, and you want to take advantage of those situations. Yeah, so let's hope that there's something else in the sleeve, or at least that it just starts working out for us a little better than it has to before. Because the Leafs as a whole, notwithstanding the Freddie Anderson slump, which was pretty frustrating and difficult, but the Leafs have probably delivered on their proposition pretty well the whole year. Like, with a few exceptions, when you can step back a little bit, this team was expected to be first in the division. It basically was the whole time even though it felt like they were going to lose their grip on it at a couple of points. And so actually it's kind of just delivered 
on what it's supposed to be in every respect but this power play going dead cold. Mm. So, uh, to Carolina and Tampa. Yeah, so one of the, I guess, trends that we're interested in, and this is more of a general question than a, than a trend, but, you know, are we underrating Carolina and overrating Tampa? Mm. So, you know, the baseline numbers for, for Carolina at 5-on-5, five five, second in the league in Corsi 4 percentage, fourth in the league by expected goal percentage, fifth in the league in scoring chance 4 percentage, all very good, all stuff we've seen from Carolina before. All of those are from uh, natural statric, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we've seen we've seen that a million times from Carolina, right? Like we, we, we know we know they're a good five on five team. Their their metrics are always you know pretty solid. Um, now this year they they have the goals working for them as well. They're fourth in the league in goals four percentage mm-hmm. at five on five. So they're a good five on five team. Um, what I think we might be underrating for them is like, hey, they they've corrected the issues that they've had before, right? And that it's borne out in these stats, right? Before, they always used to control play, and they either got bad goaltending or bad shooting or both. And now they're finally getting strong goaltending with Alex Nadelkovic, and you have James Reimer as a backup. Reimer's more than qualified to be a good backup, mm-hmm. right? They've clinched first in their division, so they have a relatively easier first-round matchup against Nashville while the, the two Florida teams beat each other up, right? Now, Nashville's not a... Um, not a pushover. They've been on a really, like, a months-long hot streak at this point just to make it to the playoffs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Carolina has an easier path to the second round than um, than either Florida or Tampa. Yeah. They have good special teams, really, really good PK, strong enough power play that has finally has some scoring talent with, with guys like Sveshnikov and Ajo and, and Natchez. And, you know, uh, Dougie Hamilton's a good shooter for a defenseman as well. You know, you, you look at it, this, this, this is just a good team. This is just a really, really good team. I think the popular estimation of Carolina, and this applies to us too, maybe a little bit, but at least it applies to me, is they don't have massive name recognition. Mm-hmm. And we're used to them putting out teams with superb fancy stats, but that got held back by goaltending and or finishing. And as you've said, their finishing is now competent and their goaltending has been good. And so that's sort of them sneakily fixing their situation. You know, with Montreal all this year, we've talked about, okay, if Montreal can just finish at an average rate and get, okay, goaltending, their 5v5 dominance is going to carry them a long way. Carolina's the the version of that on steroids, right? Where it's, they've killed it forever in in these aspects of the game. And now they seem to have patched... The, the leaks that were hurting them previously. And now they look like a great, great team. If they get goaltending, you know, like there's no reason they can't knock off Tampa. Um, if it comes to that in the second round, as I mm-hmm. pr- predict is probably the most likely outcome, but yeah, a- as you pointed out, Tampa has also kind of quietly not lived up to its rep. Right, and there's, there's of course, mitigating circumstances with Tampa, right? Mm. They've been missing their best player for the entire season. Um, Steven Samuels, who is still very, very good, has been missing for for a while now. Mm -hmm. And if they get both of those guys back healthy in the playoffs, like, that's a much better team. Well, it should be. It's a team that has, you know, an $88 million cap hit. Yeah. (laughs) Not not that I should be throwing stones, but... Yeah. (laughs) We probably don't have the most moral authority on that topic, but still, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... There's a certain amount of, we know Tampa can shred people. They've done it for a few years now. 
Right, they've absolutely earned some benefit of the doubt with their playoff success. And they would have done so even if they hadn't won the Cup last year. Mm -hmm. You know, people forget this. Tampa, even despite not winning a Cup until last year, they've made it like the Eastern Conference Final very, like quite frequently yeah. in recent years. And they made the Finals with Stamkos a few years back. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, with a different center focus on that team, but still. And I think if we were kind of especially old school, we would point out uh, Carolina has a ton of loser points. And that's actually the big factor in them being ahead of Tampa in the standings. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can even argue, okay, in actual performance, they're close to a dead heat. I, I do think that it's significant that Carolina has such great stats and now they don't really have any weaknesses. <laughs> yeah, and the thing with Carolina, they have so many you know, quasi-interchangeable players in their top nine that can just be mixed and matched a lot, right? You have... You know, Tervine and Ajo Svechnikov, which I think they've been using as their top line for for recently, but it, it's moved around because of injuries. And then you have, you know, Natchez, Nino Niederreiter, Vincent Trocek, Jordan Stahl, Warren Fogel, Jesper Foss. Like, those are all top nine forwards. And you can, there's a lot of complementary skill sets there. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of mix and match them and find things that work in a playoff series. Um, I, they, they're one of the few teams that has the depth, I think, to go up with Tampa. Yeah, I think And of course, you know, true. I haven't, haven't talked about their defensemen at all, you know. A Norris contender in, in, in Hamilton. Slavin and Pesci, who are very, very, very good. Uh, you know, they have such a deep blue line that Jake Gardner's been getting scratched a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Gardner's take, gotten a lot of crap for how he's performed since that contract. But, you know, based on the stats, he doesn't appear to be awful at, at this point. He's probably declined a bit due to his injuries. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's still a, an NHL-quality defenseman. Yeah. It's just they have a lot of them. They have a ton of them. And that's even after shutting a few. Um, you know, Hayden Fleury looked like he might be fascinating expansion draft bait, and they, they dealt him away. Uh, Jake Bean is coming into his own. He was touted for a while, but he's finally getting a chance to make Carolina's defense. It, I do find myself thinking that at a very early stage, Carolina decided, okay, the most efficient way for us to do this economically is to build from the defense out to I, you know, identify good defensemen like Dougie Hamilton, Slavin, and to lock them up to these quite respectable midterm contracts, you know, in the five million-ish range. Um, and then they've built forwards on top of that, and they've gotten strong results in play driving year after year after year. And suddenly the goaltending and the finishing have locked into place, and they look like a juggernaut. Um, it, it is just like a fascinating study in team building, you know, and a lot of us have admired um, how the, how they've put this team together. You know, Eric Tulski obviously is also one of the founding fathers of hockey analytics. And so there's a bit of a, a home favoritism in that I think a lot of nerds support what he's done. But I really do think it's impressive how this team has come together um, over the years. Very much so. Um, so yeah, like that's... That's one of the things that we wanted to discuss. The next is, it brings us no joy. <laughs> um, I regret to inform you, the Boston Bruins now have a second line. Uh, why can't they just go away? It's so annoying. Okay, so, I mean, shockingly, no one predicted this. No, no, <laughs> no one saw this coming. Man, but Taylor up. Hall is still good. Turns out uh. he wasn't just going to shoot 2% forever. And if you play him with other good players, like David Krejci and Craig Smith, and they don't get PDO to hell, um, he's going to put up points and he's going to help you win games. 
Yeah. And he is uh, doing that for the Boston Bruins. And the fundamental problem for a team facing the Boston Bruins is this, and this doesn't make them unbeatable or anything. I mean, they lost yesterday to, uh, to the Rangers, right? Mm-hmm. Not even a playoff team. But, you know, th- this is, this is the, the reality of, of facing the Bruins. Their top line, we all know it and we all hate it, Marshawn, Bergeron, Pasternak, on the year, they have a 67% Corsi 4, a 65% expected goals, and a 66% goals 4 percentage. And that's, you know, kind of the upper bound for how good a line can be. One of the annoying things and obnoxious things about this, they have a PDO under 1,000, by the way. Yeah, they're not even um, running hot because their goaltending is No, and the is thing trash. is, they, this is a team that should, exp- or this is a line that should expect to have a PDO well above 1,000 because they have three strong shooters on it. Mm-hmm. And those three strong shooters are shooting well. It's just their goaltenders have been ass when they're on the ice. If their goaltenders are normal, this line's operating at like a 75% goals for percentage. Yeah, which is enough to destroy anyone in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking absurd. Yeah. Um, now, we, we, that, that's kind of powerful, of course. We know that line. We know it's, it's still probably the best line in hockey. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is line two now, which is Hall, Craigie, Smith, uh, ha- also has a 67% Corsi, also has a 67% expected goals percentage, and has a 98% goals for percentage. <laughs> That's not a joke. Um, that that might have changed. Maybe they had some goals scored against them yesterday. Uh, this is before yesterday's game. But, like, Jesus fuck. <laughs> um, Hall has basically added a shit ton of offensive juice to this group and has not taken away from the defense. And if you have two lines that are getting two-thirds of the goals on average, it is really, really hard to beat you. Because you have to just get mollywopped in the rest of the minutes. And Boston's other forward lines, they're not great. The team does get outscored with them on the ice, but they're low event. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, it's... This is a problem. <laughs> this is the real, real problem. Yeah, you know, this looked like the beginnings of Boston actually aging out. Because they were not quite as good as we've come to expect from the, the legendary Boston Bruins. And their defense was really struggling, it seemed like. And yet, with Hall there, Krejci has been rejuvenated. And I think David Krejci was always an underratedly great like offensive center. Uh, but, you know, he's getting up there in age. And yet, he and Hall together seem to have both gotten a new lease on life. And they reminded us that they're both still really, really good. Well, Again, like, Boston becomes very scary there, even if their defense is McAvoy and friends. And I do actually think that Boston has sort of noticed that they are a frightening team uh, in the East Division. Probably the best team for my money. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, really the question is just, is there goaltending at this point, mm-hmm. right? Um. But if if that is that that's the case for all, basically every team, right? And in a playoff series where you know you're going to get you're just going to spend like you know two thirds of your your t- uh, five on five time on ice with e- either one of those first two lines, like oh god, that's not that's not pleasant. That's that's hard to beat. Yeah, it like. I think some people in Toronto especially are kind of hoping that Taylor Hall doesn't work out to the extent that he appears to be doing in Boston. And, you know, we don't wish Boston any great things. And look, I like the Nick Foligno acquisition. I hope he's healthy, obviously, for game one. But I can certainly see the logic for it. I'm okay with it. 
But, like, Taylor Hall is a better player. <laughs> that was kind of obvious. We'll see how this works out in the playoffs. But it looks like Hall has rejuvenated the Boston Bruins. Maybe it'll all fall apart when they get in there against a good team. But mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of evidence at this point that Taylor Hall is a good player. And so him reverting to being that is probably not the hugest shock. It's just very frustrating. <laughs> mm. uh, it's, yeah, very annoying yeah. that this team is still, uh, yeah, that they're, they're annoyingly finding ways to continue to put themselves in contending situations. I'm also convinced that, you know, Hull will finally get some success this year in the playoffs. Everyone will be very happy. The Bruins will somehow extend him, and then this will be all for our problem next year. Mm. And Bergeron will be great at age a billion. Fuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we'll finish on a somewhat happier note. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you wrote this one, believe it or not, not me. When did Zach Hyman <laughs> become a first liner? Forever in my heart. But Yeah, I mean, look, we, we've talked about Zach Hyman this year, but let's just kind of lay it all out and point out precisely how he's been, how good he's been. Mm-hmm. He's scoring at the same rate, 5-on-5, five five, as guys like Nick Backstrom, Robbie Fabry, Braden Point. You know, great, great players. I think he's 67th in the league in 5v5 points for 60, which is first-line territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, of course, with him spending, you know, a not insignificant amount of time with Ilya Mikheyev and, you know, Pierre Engvall. Right? Like, yes, he has really good quality of teammates when he's on the top line, but he hasn't been stable to that top line by any means. Um, moreover, his his play driving impact this year, this is something I don't have to convince anyone of, right? It's obvious when you look at the numbers this season, every single line that he's on has improved. It's been so much better with him there than with basically anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays all situations. He's, you know, one of our top PKers. Yeah, it, it's... He, he has developed so unbelievably well. He's a winger that can carry a line. I think that's become clear. A third line, anyway. Or he can support uh, a top line. He really is kind of a Swiss Army Knife type of player. And he's always been popular with his coaches uh, all the way up. But now he's kind of the uh, the break glass in case of emergency option for Sheldon Keefe is throw Zach Hyman out with whoever you want, you know, either to try and build that defensive third line again or to get some juice from a scoring line that's been having a slow night. That's a really special combination of abilities, just to be that good in that many situations. Uh, to, to be a real genuine offensive power forward, but who also can help shore up a defensive line. It's, it's really impressive to see for a guy who, you know, when he first broke in, was considered to be maybe an energy fourth liner and not much more. And, and you know, he's really established himself in the other direction. I'm, I, man, I, I have mixed feelings about his upcoming extension. Because I want to keep him, but I just ha- right. I just know <laughs> this is probably not going to end well. Yeah, I'm, and well, the thing is, you know, Zach Hyman's kind of, he's been underpaid for basically his entire career at this point now. Yeah, right. Like he's vastly, vastly overperformed his contract to the point where it's probably one of the better value contracts in the league from a team perspective. Mm-hmm. So you know, you can. It, I think in most cases, it's it's naive to, and unfair to expect players to not be profit-maximizing right? when it comes to their next contract. But Zach Hyman has you know, less reason than most because he hasn't gotten that huge payday yet. This is his chance. He's had his best season 
He's going to be a free agent. He'll be 29. He's not going to get another big free agent deal after this. Yeah. Like, rationally, Zach Hyman has to approach this with, this is the deal where I get paid the amount of money that I will live on for the rest of my life. And I know he has other interests and other ways of making money. I'm sure he'll be fine. I'm just saying, this is cash-in time. And he's really ought to be approaching it that way. There's more than one way to try and get that money, whether it's, you know, insisting on a bigger cap hit up front or insisting on a certain amount of term. If he signs with the Leafs, I assume it will be the latter because the Leafs don't have a ton of upfront cap space, but maybe willing to, you know, eat some risk on the back end of the uh, of the contract. But either way, he should be thinking it's time for me to get paid. And I will certainly not blame him personally for doing that. It just, it's, it's a tough choice for us because he's such a key player. And yet we, we can see how this could go wrong. You know, lots of players who were quite good at 29 were not very good at 32. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, but let's focus on the positive here, which is that he's had a development curve unlike almost any leaf I can imagine in terms of getting that much better at the age that he did. It was really incredible to see, and it's encouraging. You know, everyone seems to love him. He's a really likable, nice guy in the dressing room, so only good things to say about Zach Hyman. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Um, And, you know, he's going to be... We need him healthy. He's going to be a big part of anything the Leafs do this postseason. Yes, yeah, uh, you know, him getting knee on need was obviously very scary just because he, he brings such a key element. And it's, it sounds like, thankfully, he's going to be back for, for game one, but we do need him. Mm, very much so. Yeah. All right, so I think that's everything we wanted to, to really chat about this week, right? Uh, yeah, uh, we just wanted to, we probably ought to say, Happy Mother's Day. Um, oh, yes. My mother still sometimes listens to this podcast, which I am extremely flattered by i love you mom that's insane that you actually put up with us so <laughs> yeah and, and and the same is true to to for, for my mom as well so you know I, I wouldn't be anything um without her and i'm sure a lot of us have mothers or mother figures in our lives that we owe a lot of um our current circumstances to for sure so yeah happy mother's day to to everyone out there and um on a similarly important note you can catch all of mine improvements work <laughs> at japanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Harvey and Inky Thank you for listening. We will see you next week.